I just, it's kind of on a more somber note, but like going into a word of prayer, just because I feel like this week's just been heavy. Um, if you read the news, you know it's been a heavy week. And uh, that just hit me hard. I have, I have two little girls who you will probably hear throughout the sermon. Um, they're in school. And that just like really affected me. Um, and I just, I wanted to, I don't know, I was, I was grieving. And I know that this is something that grieves the heart of our Lord. This was, this was evil. This was, this is, this is, we live in a broken world. It's, it's a sinful, broken, flawed world and stuff like this happens and it grieves the heart of our creator because that's not how it was supposed to be. And I think one of the things that I've been praying this week is, as we've been talking in Ephesians, um, is literally just for the church to be the church in this moment. Like the church that is laying themselves down for the sake of other people, weeping while others weep, lamenting while others lament, and coming around each other to support and rally around each other and to love each other in difficult seasons. That is what the church is supposed to do. And so my prayer has just been that the, the church would be the church and that these families that have been affected, this community that's been affected, would just be loved on um, well. And so I wanted to, to do that um, really quickly. If you could bow your heads. Oh, that's not my mic. That's the Lord. We're going to pray. I think the Lord, that's the Lord in agreement. Uh, Jesus, thank you so much for the opportunity to be together. It's not lost on us the privilege that it is to gather together to worship and to sing praises to your name because as Ali and Stefan said, you are worthy of what these songs. You are worthy of our praise. And And we need to gather and to remind ourselves of what is true. We need to be encouraged in truth. And so, Lord, I, I just thank you so much for the opportunity to gather. Lord, I'm, I'm praying over this incident in Texas and just everything that happened. I, I don't even have words, and all I can say is that I know that this grieves your heart. You, you tell us. I mean, you, Jesus, as the physical example that we can see of your heart, is weeping at the, at the grave of Lazarus over the effects of sin in this world. And so, Lord, I just, I, I, I don't know. I just pray that you would help us to be a people who feel the weight of this kind of stuff. All politics aside, you tell us that there is a season for everything, and this right now is a season for weeping and lamenting and grieving over an evil, horrendous act. We pray for these families um, that have lost children, family members, and we just ask that you would be present, that you would help us as the church to be the church in this season, to sit, not to try to fix but to sit and to weep and to listen. And so, Lord, I, I just pray that you would um, continue to work in that, that incident. Lord, I pray that you would be over our time today. Let us not be content to come and to just consume. That is not why we're here. We're here to, to, to challenge ourselves and to chew on these things. What you, ta- what you tell us, and this is your word, and we're to chew on these things and to go out and, and to live this stuff out. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us continue to fill us with your spirit, continue to let us see the fruit of the spirit in our lives as we engage with the people around us. We love you, Lord, and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
All right. So we're going to be in the book of Ephesians chapter 6. So if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, um, go ahead and turn there. We'll be in the first nine verses. But let me go ahead and just give a little context to what we're talking about here. So um, last year, if you were here, you know that Pastor Jim took you guys through a series on the book of Leviticus. And in that series, Jim likened Leviticus to a blueprint of this type of house that he wanted to build. It was going to be a blueprint that pointed to Jesus, Jesus serving as the foundation of this new kind of building, this, a building where the Spirit of God would dwell. It would be a new kind of community. But what's going to happen is you have to, in order to get to the physical structure, in order to move from paper to a physical structure, you need to have a builder. And that's what happened on the day of Pentecost. The Spirit came and he began to build this new community, this new dwelling place. And so I want to spend a little bit of time highlighting where you've come from in the book of Ephesians so far up to this point, because in order for us to understand the passage that we're getting into today, the way that I think Paul wants us to understand this passage, we need to have context. Context is is key. Everything in this book is built upon the first three chapters. It is an incredibly beautiful book. It's one of my favorite books in the New Testament. It is a work of art, and I love the way that Paul develops his argument and develops this letter. I would call it genius. It is an absolute work of genius. And in typical Pauline fashion, what Paul does in the first several chapters is he outlines the beautiful, uh, the beauty of the gospel and the theological implications of the gospel. That's what he does. He's just outlining, hey, this is what the gospel did. This is what Jesus did. The moment that Jesus walked out of the grave under his own power and authority, everything in history changed. And then you get to chapter 4, and you start to see the practical outworkings of this. This is how, so this truth, this beautiful, glorious, majestic truth, this is what it looks like lived out in your life. And that's what he begins in chapter 4. But in chapter 1, again, I'm just going to build this up because I think we need to. We need to have this context And plus, uh, we don't have a service after this, so I can keep going. Uh, No, I'm just kidding. You've been blessed. He starts, and as he's writing to this people, he says, you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. This is who you are now. You've been adopted into the family of God. You've been given a new identity. The old has passed. The new has come, as Craig was saying in his video, right? You've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, who's the down payment of your inheritance in Christ, the spirit who testifies to you that you are in fact his child, that you belong to him. You've been given every spiritual blessing. You have everything that you need for flourishing in this life. That's how he begins this book. And then he moves into chapter two and he says, you were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and in your offenses. Pretty somber, (laughs) but so true, not just like, like really injured, not just like somewhere off the mark. No, you were dead. It's not like you were out in, in the middle of the ocean and somebody threw you a, a, like a little, what is that little circle thing called? That thing, that floaty, to save you. No, you were dead at the bottom of the ocean and Christ came and he revived you and brought you back to life. That is what is going on here. You were dead. And let me tell you why it's important for us to reflect on that truth, because we need to know the truth about ourselves. Without this, we won't be able to do what Jim talked about last week in the context of a marriage relationship in mutual submission. And what I'm going to address this week, this idea of submitting to authority. The Christian life values honest self-examination. 
Be honest with yourself where you've been, what you've done, what's motivated you, what currently motivates you. Be honest, because without self-examination, there's a strong tendency to fall into the camp of self-righteousness. I've done this. I did this. And that's what Craig was saying. He's like, it's not by your works. Chapter 2. So you were dead in your uh, offenses, and you lived according to the flesh, but God... Two, arguably the two most beautiful words in scripture. Being rich in mercy and love, even though you were dead, made us alive together in Christ. By grace, you are saved. Man, that changes everything. And let's, let's real quick define grace. I'm a huge on definitions because we can't over-celebrate the idea of grace. We can't over-celebrate this truth. So what is Grace. Grace is showing favor toward another. It's treating people better than they deserve to be treated. In the Hebrew and the Greek, grace is often used to denote goodwill, favor, acceptance, delight, pleasing in, um, loving kindness. And so based on these definitions and understandings, we see that grace is fundamentally a delighting in. God delights in you. It pleased him to come and to restore and to reconcile you back to a relationship with himself. That's grace. He went to extraordinary measures, i.e. coming to earth, taking on flesh, and and dying on a cross so that you could be in relationship with him. That's grace. He delighted in doing that for you. It's completely unmerited. God doesn't extend that favor to you because of anything that you've done. He did it because he was delighted to do so. He was pleased to do so. That is the God that you serve. This is his heart. And so we need to be a people who show grace. We love and we delight in others. We cultivate environments of grace. And in turn, that produces a culture of acceptance. And then that in turn turns into a culture of transformation. And so then you start to see at the end of chapter two that everyone's coming. It wasn't just reserved for a specific people. Now, like, you see the expansiveness and the explosiveness of the gospel and what it's done. He's creating a new people for himself from every region, as Aaliyah and Stefan said. This is, what, this is what God's doing. And it's because of this mysterious and wonderful grace that Paul's on mission. He says, I'm a slave of the gospel. I'm a servant of the gospel, and I delight in that. Everything is based on grace to tell people of the grace of God and his outrageous recon, recon, uh, love for people. That's the motivation, is love. Love is the motivation. And that's why he can pray in Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 16. I pray that according to the wealth of his glory, he will grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner person, that Christ will dwell in your hearts through faith, so that because you've been rooted and grounded in love, You will be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and thus to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you will be filled up to the fullness of God. His prayer is like, hey, you've been given a new identity. You've been showered, like grace has been showered upon you. I hope that you know. My prayer is that I would hope that you would get it in your brains how much God loves you. And not just to know it, I recently read um, this example of there's, a, there's two ways to know honey. You can read about honey and you can know the chemical makeup of honey. 
But then you can taste honey. And you can know honey experientially. That's what he's praying here. I pray that you would know experientially, deep down in your soul, how much God loves you. That's your motivation. Because when you're loved and you experience a forgiveness like that, it changes everything. All you're going to want to do is to delight, like you want to delight or please that person. You, it delights you to try to please that person. I don't know if you've ever been in a, in a type of a relationship or a circumstance when you've wronged somebody in a pretty significant way. And then they've shown you forgiveness. And all you want to do in response is to do better for that person. That's the type of thing that's going on here. Know the depth of his love for you. Because this, is, this changes and informs and shapes everything. And that's why he can say in chapter 4, Therefore, because of all of this, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Walk in a way that's consistent with your new calling, your new identity, right? You are a house being built together. And how is this house being built together from all different kinds of backgrounds and, and people groups? It's speaking the truth in love. He says you are to speak the truth in love. That is how you are to, to grow up into this body. Because as you speak the truth in love, you are no longer going to be carried, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and every cunning scheme. Because you're constantly refreshing and renewing your mind in the gospel. In his love for you. And so what is the truth in love? The truth is Jesus. Literally, literally a little bit down, he says the truth is Jesus. And so what does that mean? We are to speak Jesus' truths over people. When they're hurting and when they're depressed and when they feel like they've made too many mistakes and they can't possibly go to God because God can't possibly have that much patience and they must be depleting whatever amount of grace he has for them, you remind them that he took on flesh and came and died on a cross. You remind them how he extended himself to the leper. You remind, you, remind, remind them of how he humanized the dehumanized. He went to the ostracized, the marginalized. He loved them. That was why he came. That was his heart. And so we're to speak these truths over people. We're to walk, chapter 5, in light. Not in darkness. That's changed. We no longer reside there. We now walk in light. And then he gets to this uh, verse in chapter 5, and uh, verse 18, and he says, Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Do not get drunk with wine. And it's this illustration of what happens when you're drunk with wine. You lose control. You're not able to control yourself. You're not able to love people the way that they deserve to be loved, the way that God tells you to love them. So rather than being drunk and having your inhibitions wired in a different kind of way, you are to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that you can be self-controlled and that you can actually extend yourself to people the way that Jesus extended himself to people. And that statement... <laughs> Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, submitting. And then he goes on to talk about how that looks. Speaking out in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I was so excited watching Aaliyah, Stefan, and Leland today. Because they're all up here like, and I was just like, that's sick. It's all coming out of their heart. And I don't know. But <laughs> this idea, like that's what, this is what happens. It's the overflow of, of our heart. Like this is what the Spirit does. And, then, and one of the ways that the Spirit exercises and comes out in our life is we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's the, what, what happens. And so that brings us to our context today. 
Um, and so I, I'm going to read it, and then I want to kind of give you a little bit of context. So starting in verse 1, chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, accompanied by a promise, namely, that it will go well with you and that you will live a long time on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but raise them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Not like those who do their work only when someone um, is watching as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Obey with enthusiasm as though serving the Lord and not people, because you know that each person, whether slave or free, if he does something good, this will be rewarded by the Lord. Masters, treat your slaves the same way giving up the use of threats because you know that both you and they have the same master in heaven and there's no favoritism with him, with the Lord. Paul continues his instructions. You, last week we started this, this exhortation to the household, right? So wives and husbands. Now we're moving to fathers and children and then slaves and masters. The father, the husband, and the owner, the master is the same person. <laughs> He's moving into the household, And so he's instructing Christians on how they're to conduct themselves in domestic relationships. These are gospel truths, chapters one through four. What are you doing with them? This is what it looks like to live this out. This is what it looks like to be a person filled with the spirit. And so why this topic? I think it's interesting because Christians, they were a mystery to the people at this time. They viewed Christianity as a threat to the social order. Because they didn't know, like, they, there was, what are they supposed to do with phrases like, you are freed in Christ? Well, what does that mean if, I'm, if I own slaves? They can just go? What does it mean when Jesus says, you, you are supposed to have allegiance to me over and above anything else? When the father, the husband, and the master is the one in charge and makes all the decisions. And so they didn't know what to do with that. And so I think part of the reason that Paul's addressing the household is because he's going to show that Christians are not a threat to the order of decency. But I would argue that that's not his main concern. That's part of his concern. His main concern is to focus on how the gospel informs and shapes your life. How does the gospel applied to your life change things? And that's why we read exhortations like we just read. Children, you are to obey your parents in the Lord. Slaves are to obey their human masters as to Christ. Paul's not just adopting social norms to appease the community and derail any concerns that they might have about what this thing is or about what the church is. It's so much more than that. His instructions are laced with theological motivations. Christians are to be motivated in their submission and obedience because of Jesus. And we're going to get to that in just a second. So here's what I think is going on. Um, with the passage that Jim spoke on last week and then what we're getting into this week. Paul's encouraging Christians to remember what's been done for them. They're to remember the life and the ministry of Jesus and how he wielded his authority. Jesus wasn't domineering. Jesus didn't use threats to assert his authority. Jesus um, used all of his authority to benefit others. He used his authority to bless and to restore others, to reconcile others. Jesus's life was beautiful. That's how Jesus used his authority. 
One of my favorite, favorite examples of this is in John 13. It's on the night that Jesus is betrayed. He's having dinner with his disciples. And uh, he gets up, you guys know the story, he gets up to wash the feet of his disciples in this great act of humility and service. But the line before that action gets me every time. Because it says, knowing that the Lord, his heavenly father, had given everything into his hand, he got up, took off his garment, and began to wash the disciples' feet. Knowing that the father had given everything into his hand, he succeeded. He accomplished his mission. He's accomplishing his mission. And what, what is the tendency within us when we feel like we've made it? We just stop trying. We don't serve anybody anymore. I've done it. I've done my duty. I did it. And it says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given everything into his hand, got up, took every, his, off his garments, and he washed the feet of his disciples. And he said, just as I did for you, you are to do for others. That's how Jesus asserted his authority. He used his authority to bless others and to serve others, to, to create cultures of reconciliation, environments of reconciliation, healing. That's how Jesus asserted his authority. And so I think that as we reflect on the one who gave his life completely and absolutely away for the sake of other people, like this is what Paul has in mind when he addresses the household. Christians are to live beautiful lives that represent the life-giving morality and ethic of God, a life of mutual submission characterized and motivated by the example of Jesus. Lives that benefit and bless other people. So that's the context of the letter up until this point. And so he, he begins by addressing children. And one thing, I know, I know we're going a little slow, but I think it's it's important. Um, one thing that I think is really interesting in this entire household address with marriage, kids, and the master-slave relationship is that Paul begins every instance with the subordinate member of the relationship. Did you notice that? Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Slaves, obey your masters. That's countercultural for this because you didn't address them. You addressed the, the father, the man of the house. He was the one that disseminated the information. He was the one that made the decisions. And I love what Paul does here because what he does here is he shows honor and dignity to these people. And he says, you have just as much a part to play in this community and in this church as we do. You have a role. Can you think, like, they're sitting in this, this little house of a church thing and they're hearing this letter read to them, and they're like, that's me. Might have been the first time they're ever addressed and given a role and a responsibility like that. That's honoring. That's dignifying. That's what the gospel does. I think he does it intentionally. And then to make it even more unique, as Jim kind of alluded to last week, Paul places restrictions on the husband, father, and master and tells them that their what their responsibilities are to be in this new community. He assumes their authority, but challenges them to, to steward their responsibilities differently. They're not to go about it the same way they've always gone about it. And so he begins by saying, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And I don't want to like gloss over that statement, the in the Lord part. 
Because it's not simply to obey your parents because that's what you're supposed to do. No, it's more than that. Children are supposed to obey their parents in the Lord. That's their motivation. Their motivation is different. They're not merely ascribing to this standard social structure or a family hierarchy. They're not even obeying it because that's what they believe that they're supposed to do. No, again, it's more than that. They're obeying because of Jesus. That's the motivation. That's the differentiating mark in a Christian. Everything the Christian does, including the Christian child, is to be done unto the Lord. Their lives are to be informed and shaped by their relationship with Jesus. They are to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And so just as Jesus obeyed his heavenly father, so the Christian child obeys his earthly father and mother. And as Jesus honored his heavenly father, so the Christian child honors his parents. And so you can see how this whole speak the truth in love thing, the truth being Jesus, you see how this starts to come into play. Because as parents, it's our job and it's our duty and responsibility to explain to our kids why they should obey. And it's not just because I said so. Guilty. Super guilty of that. It's more than that. We should be pointing them to the example of Jesus. The Christian submits or or obeys because this was clearly modeled and taught by Jesus himself. You want your kid to go in the way of the Lord? Point them to Jesus. Don't just say it's because of me and my authority and what I say. Look at the one who came down and took on flesh for you in honor of his father and to obedience of his heavenly father. That's what we're to do. That's how we speak these gospel truths over each other. So as Jesus entrusted himself to the Father, so children are to entrust themselves to their parents. They're to trust their parents, that they're going to guide them into life and raise them into responsible men and women of character and consequence. That's men and women um, who live with integrity and who are going to have a positive impact on their community. So that's the first motivation that Paul gives to his children or to children, you are to obey in the Lord. And then the second one is honor your father and mother that it will go well with you and that you will live a long time on the earth. You recognize that one? It's the fifth commandment in the Ten Commandments. But this promise is attached to this statement that highlights what comes out of obeying and honoring your parents. He says, if you obey, your honor, obey and honor your parents, then it's going to go well with you, generally speaking. <laughs> There's always exceptions to the rule, right? This is, this is a proverbial statement, and it, it, that's exactly what it is. It's a proverb. It's not a promise. This is just saying this is general wisdom. If you obey the wisdom of your parents or your mentors, this is how it is going to go for you, right? And so you may even start to see that you achieve greater success than them, which is, I think, every parent's dream, right? That their kids <laughs> does better than them. But this is why I think it's important to obey your parents. Learn from them, Learn from your parents. Learn from a mentor. You don't know everything. So show a little bit of humility. And yes, I'm speaking to adult children too. You don't know everything. Show a little humility. Learn. People have lived a full life. You haven't. They've experienced, people have experiences that you don't have. People have successes that you haven't had. People have had failures that you haven't experienced. So learn from that. Learn from successes. Learn from failures. 
And I think like when I, when I read this, I'm immediately brought back to the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs because you have this father who is pleading with his child to just glean and listen. Listen to my words. Please, please listen to my words so that you can discern between what is wisdom and what is foolishness. Listen. Because if you don't, I promise you, foolishness and folly, Lady Folly, he, uses this, he personifies wisdom as Lady Wisdom and folly as Lady Folly. And he says, listen, it's so easy to go after her, Lady Folly. She doesn't even try. Everything she does is so enticing. You don't go to Lady Wisdom because it takes a little effort. But we need to be able to discern that. What does Lady Folly lead to? Death. And so he says, like, listen to them, honor them, so that it goes well with you. But then he leads us um, into this exhortation to fathers. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. Some of your translations might say, don't exasperate your children. But raise them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is countercultural. Culturally speaking, this is a big deal. Because the power of the father in the Greco-Roman world was practically unlimited. Fathers had the right to determine whether or not a child lived or died, whether or not it would be sold into slavery or not, and to discipline their child as they saw fit, even if it was incredibly severe. To be sure, not all parents were harsh, but the abuses that children suffered are chronicled. We, we have record of it. For example, in the, in the book of Ecclesiasticus, which is in the Apocrypha, it notes that a father who loves his son will whip him and beat him often and that a father shouldn't pamper his son, play with him, or laugh with him. This is a heavy-handed type of discipline and instruction. And Paul's saying, no, you're to be different. That is not how you're to exercise your authority. And so I think this, this exhortation probably came as a surprise to most of Paul's readers. Because, again, not all parents were harsh, but this, this went against the cultural norm, the cultural grain. And I think, like, it's important for us to remember, this is what this entire letter has been about. Don't live like that anymore. I'm going to keep coming back to this because it informs everything. It informs everything. For the first three chapters of the book, Paul reminds his readers of their new identity in Jesus and shows them that because of the gospel, their lives should not look the same. You don't do this anymore. You don't exercise your authority like that anymore. And that's what we have here, Paul encouraging parents. Now, raising children is no small task. <laughs> like it's, it's incredibly like, difficult, right? You have this little alien of a thing that's born, and then you're trying to keep this little human being alive, and then hopefully you're shaping them into men and women of, of courage and faith, the men and women who are going to make an impact on their community in a positive way. That's, that's not a small deal. And so there's a lot to unpack there. And this, this idea, like how fathers go about, or, and just really this is parents in general, but he's addressing it to fathers. But this hit me the other day because I was, I was having coffee with someone and we were talking about discipleship. And he wanted to know what I thought about discipleship and how I go about discipleship because I have a couple of different groups where I invest in these guys. The Lord brings them into my life and I want to intentionally invest in their lives. I want to see them go and live into their God-given abilities, right? And so we're sitting here and we're talking about it. And in, in that conversation, um, it hit me with the realization that I often show more grace and patience to those guys 
that I'm trying to pour into than my own girls. And like, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. And it was an incredibly hard pill to swallow because my primary ministry is to my family. That's my primary ministry. That's what God has given me. God has given me this beautiful wife and these two little girls. They're my primary focus. They're the ones who see me behind closed doors and who see if my said beliefs, my, my proclaimed beliefs actually line up with how I act. They see that. Nobody else does. And so I want to be a man who demonstrates consistency in my life. I want to be a husband and father who demonstrates consistency. I want my girls to experience the same type of grace and patience um, that I show to the guys that the Lord brings into my life. But to be honest, I'm, I'm in process. I'm still learning this. I'm, I don't have it all figured out. And so here's what I think. Here's some of the lessons that I feel like I wanted to share just to give some examples of fathers don't provoke your children to anger. One of the, the biggest things that I've been learning is this idea of patience. Be patient with your kids as best you can. Don't just react. Reactionary flare-ups aren't helpful. And more often than not, they're not redemptive. <laughs> right? Like if you're being honest, what do those kind of reactions that you have teach your child about their mistakes? If you don't time, take time to explain the, your thought process and, and like let them explain their thought process, and if you don't take the time to run them through why they shouldn't be doing or saying a certain thing, then how are they supposed to learn? There's no lesson there. Except that maybe they need to walk on eggshells around you. Maybe that's what they're learning. I don't know how dad's going to be today because yesterday this was cool, but today, I don't know. Right? And so this idea of being patient and so, yeah, we be we're, we're supposed to be tough on sin. We, we discipline our, our kids, but we also need to be firm on grace. If my kid is acting up or doing something that they shouldn't be doing, I want to know what's motivating them in their heart and in their head. If I can understand what's going on here, then I can actually point them back to the gospel and show them what they're believing is not going to lead them to happiness. The gospel will. But that takes patience. Slowing down and asking questions. The other one that, I, that really hit me was this idea of being an example. And I don't think that the way that Paul orders this letter here is an accident. I, like he, he speaks about marriage first because this is one of the ways that you teach your kids. How do you treat your spouse? Do you lay down your life for your spouse? Do you seek their benefit? Do you wash them in the word? Do you guys talk about it? Do you encourage them? Here's, here's the thing, right? I'm raising two little girls. And when I found out that Lauren, who's sitting right there, uh, was pregnant with Bella, I was petrified. <laughs> I don't know what to do with a little girl. I have no idea what to do with a little girl. Nothing. And so that, like, it just kind of scared me. And then honestly, she's six, my oldest. One of the things that scares me is this whole idea of, like, dating. Right? I know how little boys are. I was one. Still am sometimes. But this idea, right? Like, I, it scares me, and I hope I'm praying we're way off from that. But um, this, this is on my mind. And I remember reading an article a few years ago, and I couldn't find it, but it really, really stuck with me. And it was essentially this theme of um, show your little girl by your example what kind of man she should date. How does your little girl see you relating to your wife? 
Does she see you encouraging her, listening to her, supporting her and her goals and dreams? Do you lay down your life for her benefit? And then the author of the article encouraged um, the readers to take regular daddy-daughter dates with their girls and to, to pamper them, to show them how a man should treat them. Because to be honest, it was kind of funny at first, but this idea of like a shotgun dad, right? I don't want to have to be that kind of dad. I want to model the, the type of man that she should date, right? Because I want her to be able to, to, to discern between what is going to be a man that's going to treat her well and encourage her in the Lord versus a man who's not going to treat her well and doesn't have her best interests in mind. So be an example. And that goes for your sons too, not just daughters. What kind of example are you setting for your son? In your marriage, what does your son see you doing? How does, how does your son see you treat your wife? What kind of an example is being set? And then beyond that, I think kids are learning what good and godly authority is. This is why husbands and wives are encouraged to submit to one another. Because they're going to learn authority from somewhere. They might as well learn it from your house. I have a lot of lessons that I've learned. <laughs> um, I'm going to not go all over them, uh, over them. But this other one that I just want to say is confess your mistakes and apologize when you mess up. That's okay. Right? I don't know what this idea is that like you can just gloss over your mistakes or sweep them under the rug because you're the one in authority, so you don't need to do that. That's not biblical. That's not the way that you're supposed to steward that relationship with your child. Confess. Model a life of honest and humble confession. Do that with your spouse so that your kids see it, and do that with your kids. Your kids need to see that modeled because confession is the thing that actually brings about healing. This is huge. It's a demonstration of the gospel at work. So humble yourself and, and, and confess your mistakes. Because if you don't, you have, there is a chance that your children will resent you because of the way that you've treated them. And that's what he's trying to say here. Don't provoke them to anger. Show them what a godly relationship, a humble, mutually submissive, submissive relationship is supposed to look like in the Lord. And then he moves on to slaves obey your human masters with fear and trembling and the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. And if we're being honest, this, this topic doesn't sit well with us. Um, and for good reason. I understand that. But I think it's worth noting um, that the slavery that we're talking about here is not the same type of slavery that we're familiar with in American history. It's just not the same. Um, that's not to say that it was okay, because people still owned people, people bought people, traded people, and exploited people, compelling them to do for, for service, but it was different. Number one, race didn't play a factor in this. Most of the sla uh, slavery made up a third of the population in the Roman Empire, and it was mostly prisoners of war or people that had to sell themselves to a person because they had a debt that they couldn't pay. And so that's the idea of what he's addressing here. Um, again, it doesn't make it right, but it is different. Um, but I also want to really quickly point out that we have to keep in mind, when we address a topic like this, Paul's addressing a, an accepted and deeply established part of the Greco-Roman society. I think when we read this, we want to import our 21st century values onto this, this reading, and you can't do that. You can't. It wouldn't have made sense to them. And so rather what Paul does is he comes in and he imports the gospel and he shows them a new type of ethic and a new type of morality and a way that people should be treated and that changes things. 
And so right out of the gate, um, this is the pattern we've seen developing. Slaves, obey your masters as to Christ. Again, it's the motivation. It's not to do just because they're compelled to do it. It's not even because it's the, like what they're supposed to do or, or it's the right thing to do. Their motivation to obey is rooted in the Lord. The, their gospel has changed everything. The way that they work and they conduct themselves now is, is rooted in gospel realities. You no longer cheat. You no longer lie. You seek the benefit of your master. And then he goes on, and he, he delivers this shocking exhortation to slave masters. Masters, treat your slaves the same way. Well, what's the same way? That you are to seek their benefit, right? That you're, you're not to do things as people pleasers, but you are to seek their benefit. That would have come as a shock to these readers, and, and that kind of statement would radically reorganize and recharacterize the slave-master relationship, if not move towards completely abolishing it. You are to now, in this relationship, the way the gospel defines everything is you seek the benefit of each other. That's what this is. You exercise humility, and you, pa- you exercise patience, and you make every effort to keep the unity of spirit and the bond of peace. That's what you do. You're motivated by love. So arrogance and feelings of inferiority or superiority no longer have their place in the Christian life. They just don't. You've been brought down to this level. You are on the same playing field. You're indwelled by the same spirit, one body, one father. And so I think as as we're, we're thinking about this and as I move toward a closing, it's important for us, though, to consider how we go about our work. Right? how we conduct ourselves, how we interact with our coworkers, how we interact with our employees or customers, that all matters because we're not just working for a paycheck anymore. We're working as unto the Lord. Our work, and as we do this wholeheartedly unto the Lord, our work is done with care, not just to get by, but we want to see people succeed and not just use them. And I think that that matters because God takes pleasure in our good work and then he uses it as a way to witness to others about what the Lord does and how he reorganizes everything in our minds. And so as I close, I want to leave us with this one final word with this idea of submission and obedience. Submission is about laying your life down for the sake of others, for the benefit of others. That's what this entire section has been about. Be filled with the Spirit, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is one of the ways that the Spirit works in our lives, is through submission. There's a guy who wrote a book called The Complete Book of Discipleship, and he defines submission this way. Or he says this about submission. Submission is a love word before it's an authority word. You submit to others because you desire to enter into a relationship that benefits you and those around you. Man, I love that. Submission is a love word before it's an authority word. Isn't that the way that Jesus modeled it? Not to exercise his authority in a domineering way, but for your benefit, so that you may grow and experience a peace that you've never experienced and a joy that you've never experienced, so that you might be reconciled back to your Father. Submission helps to drive us further into community, which is why I think he has this here. Submit to one another, drive into community. And then it also develops humility within us. It helps us to keep away from that idea of self-righteousness. And that's radically countercultural. Let's pray. 
Jesus, thank you so much for your word and what it teaches us. We regularly need to reorient our, our minds to the gospel and the truth of the gospel, what that means for our lives. It's not about us anymore. As Stefan said earlier, it's not about us, it's about you. We just want to to see you glorified and this community that the Spirit indwells that's characterized by peace, true soul, peace, wholeness, rest, joy. Man, that's exciting. And that's that's intriguing to the world around us. They're going to wonder what's different. Each other, not trying to outdo one another in order to like get a, a step up, but seeking each other's benefit. Man. Lord, we're thankful that that's the kind of God that you are. You sought our benefit. So thank you. I pray that you would help us to figure out, to lean more into the spirit and figure out ways that we can practically implement this in our life as we engage others. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ushers to come forward.